Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him. As was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. Well, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. 
Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Called him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Thank God for the truth and meaning available to us in his living word. Thanks, Mike. Bron, can I just take Mike home and have him read the Bible to me every day? I think that'd be be great. Good morning. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. We will be looking at them as we go along. What makes a great leader? Uh, When I was in high school and in my early 20s, I guess, it it was, it was James, Jim, Jamo. He was one of my best friends, and he just seemed to be like, like a natural leader. Everyone followed him. Another question, what do you want a great leader to do for you? What do you want a great leader to do for you? Uh, to be honest, I wanted James to make me cool. I wasn't cool. But everyone thought James was cool. He, he was good-looking. He was funny. You know, he liked, he liked the Smiths, so we all liked the Smiths. He, he grew a quiff, so we all tried to grow a quiff. You can see how well that went for me. 
Um, all the girls fancied him. Did you have a friend like that? You know, like, you think you're just um, chatting to someone, befriending, and uh, you work out, actually, they're just trying to get to your friend. But it just seems so good to hang out with James. You always felt like you were in the right place doing the right thing. Now, there's lots of reasons. I won't go into, you can ask me afterwards. Lots of reasons. James wasn't a great leader. But I think deep down, I was hoping that some of that charm, that popularity, that cool, I was hoping it would wear off on me. I was hoping James was going to make me what I thought was great, like I thought he was great. But we all want to be great, don't we? I mean, a great mate, a great work colleague, a great artist, a, a great mum or a great dad, a great student. We want to be on the right road. We want to be not taking any wrong turns. Well, today we're coming to the end of our series on um, who is Jesus. We're going to carry on in Mark through Easter, but the series, who is Jesus? And today we're looking at what makes Jesus the greatest leader that ever was or there ever will be. So for the next little while, join me with the disciples and Jesus on the road to Jerusalem and hear him ask us that question that appears twice in this passage. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So there's an outline there in your leaflets. Uh, we're going to see how Jesus is the one who chooses the way, the one who shows us the way, and the one who stops on the way. But first, some context, get us up to speed. How, how do we end up on the road to Jerusalem here. So keep your Bibles open, flick through. Um, back at the end of chapter 8, we saw that verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. Uh, after that, we get Jesus' mountaintop transfiguration where Jesus takes on what seems a heavenly appearance and meets Moses and Elijah. And again, verse uh, chapter 9, verse 7, God says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. But then it's back down the mountain into our world, uh, and Jesus is met by a dad and his son. Just typical, really, of those who come to Jesus for healing. They're without hope, they're oppressed, they're experiencing the, the tragic consequences of living, living under the shadow of death and evil. And three times in this section, Jesus predicts that he must be handed over, die, and rise again. But nobody seems to be tuning in and listening to what he's actually saying, what he's on about. Uh, Jesus told us in 1015, uh, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a child, um, that's, that is without being able to offer any status or power or anything else in return, um, anyone who can't receive the kingdom like a child will never enter it. And then there's a rich bloke in, in verses 17 to 23, a rich, morally upright man, but he doesn't follow Jesus. He doesn't enter the kingdom of God, excluded by his love of the very wealth that he thought would secure him. In fact, chapter 10, verse 27, it's impossible for man to get himself into the kingdom of heaven. But with God, anything is possible. So how then is this man, Jesus, going to bring people into God's kingdom? So we pick up the story, verse 32, on the road to Jerusalem. 
And Jesus is choosing the way. Choosing the way that he knows will lead to his death. The disciples, they're astonished. And the others following, they're afraid. Why? Because Jesus has already predicted twice that when he gets to the end of this road in Jerusalem, he will be handed over, killed, and resurrected. And yet here's Jesus at the front, leading single-mindedly, determinedly, marching towards his destiny. Willingly, purposefully heading towards terror. Look with me, verses 33 and 34. We're going to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus is going to be delivered over to the religious leaders, the very people who should have been first to recognize him as Messiah, the very people who should have been leading the people to God. And they will, they are the ones who will condemn him to death. And not only that, they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. So as a nation, throughout the Old Testament, when God's, when God's people get their just desserts for, going, for being evil, when they experience God's wrath, they often experience it at the hands of Gentiles. So being handed, Jesus being handed over to the Gentiles is bad news. It's, it's the equivalent of being handed over to God's wrath. So why go? Why does Jesus stay on this road and call his followers to go the same way? Remember, Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the promised Messiah or Christ, anointed one. And that means he and God the Father, they're unified in purpose. They're on the same page. Uh, This isn't some cruel, bloodthirsty God sending his innocent son to satisfy some unreasonable demand. The father and the son are both on the same mission together. This is God's son volunteering, choosing, opting to do what only he can do. To bring justice for all the evil in the world. And at the same time, bring God's mercy. Jesus determined, because he's not teaching his followers a religion um, that shows the solution to the shadow of death over the world. He's setting off to... Be the solution. So Jesus chooses the way, and now he shows us the way. So you can imagine the twelve carrying on along the road behind Jesus, and as it sinks in that, oh no, we didn't mishear him. He really did say that he's going to be, he's really serious about this suffering, death, and resurrection. And James and John, what they've got, they've got it. Well, at least. They know things are coming to a head, and they want to get their foot in the door early. So I can just, you can just imagine them walking down the road, kind of like, right, we'll shuffle towards the front of the pack of the disciples. Okay. You tell him. No, you ask him. You ask him. Come on, you ask him. Right, quick, Peter's Chinese shoelace. Let's go now. Um, and they go up, teacher, uh, teacher, they say. We want you to do for us uh, whatever we ask. 
pretty bold, aren't they? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. They've probably got in mind some kind of military victory that Jesus is going to win. So in other words, when you get voted in, can we have the top positions in your cabinet? When you hit the big time, can we be your left and right hand men? Now, how do you react to that? Are you kind of like, oh, well, good on you, you know. First up, best dressed. Early bird catches the worm and that. Or are you like, the selfish, cheeky things. Because that's how the disciples reacted, verse 41. Probably because they didn't think of doing it first. <coughs> James and John, they want to be great. But don't we all? I mean, this life is full of struggle and, and evil and setbacks. And none of us want to be a failure. We want to be great. We want to be a great dad. A great work colleague. or We want to be a great son or a great daughter. Uh, we don't want to fail. I don't, I don't want to fail you. I don't, I don't want to fail Sharon. I, I want to be a great friend. I don't want to be lonely. I want to be great. But what about Jesus? How does he... How does he react to their, their bold ambition? Well, it's interesting what he doesn't do. He doesn't speak against the desire to be great. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be first. And he doesn't speak about, against the idea of ru- there being rulers or people in authority. But what Jesus does do is change the definition of greatness. He changes the definition of greatness. You see, James and John haven't learned the lesson of the rich young, the rich young ruler. He, he already had status, wealth, and power, but he didn't enter the kingdom of God. And they've not learned the lesson from the children who, with no status or power, do enter the kingdom of God. See, James and John were seeking security, seeking greatness in the wrong place by seeking power and control Jesus turns all of this upside down. True greatness, he says, comes through serving. Verses 43 and 44. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus isn't speaking against people having authority or leading. But what he is saying is to use that authority to serve Rule by serving those we oversee. Greatness is measured by how much you serve. Now, I was looking for an illustration of a modern-day world leader. And it's slim pickings in this age of Donald Trump, I can tell you. But see if you can guess which world leader said this. It's a quote on the screen. I know the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right. To take the long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. Any ideas? Yeah, exactly right, Simon. I'll tell you something else she said. Queen Elizabeth II, yes. Pray that God make, this was what she said just before a coronation. She said, for you, this will be a holiday, but pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you 
all the days of my life. Those uh, quotes you can find, the Bible Society UK have published this book called The Servant Queen. See, Elizabeth has worked out what to do with the authority. She's not going to hang on to her rights to oppress or anything like that. She wants to serve. So Jesus isn't saying, be a pushover, do what everybody tells you to do. Your goal is to serve as best you can. That sometimes might mean saying no, but I don't want to soften the blow. True greatness is in serving. And I don't want to presume to, tell, presume to tell you how to serve in your situation. But a helpful thing to do is to recognize where you are a leader. Because we're all a leader in some way. As a parent, as an older sibling, um, at work, in sports. And all Christians, every Christian is a leader in that we are followers of Jesus on the road with him. Trying to get others to join us on that road. Work out how you can use those roles that you have, not to lord it over, but to serve, to give up your rights to serve so that others can know Jesus. The ultimate example of this serving is, of course, Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is a servant king. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Despite being ruler of the universe, despite being the one through whom and for whom all of this was made, Jesus serves by giving himself up for us. Uh, Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I just want to pick out three ways that Jesus shows us his, his greatness in serving us. First of all, verse 38, Jesus is going to drink a cup. Now, what's that on all about? Well, through the Gospels, Jesus uses this cup metaphor as, as a way of referring to his death. And it's a word loaded with meaning from the Old Testament, where it means suffering God's wrath, God's just uh, judgment against evil. Now, people get upset about the idea of God's wrath, don't they? They, they see it, make, it sounds like God is cruel or angry. But let's try and illustrate what God is feeling. Um, any of you who've got children will have um, at some point appreciated their art. Here's one of um, Mivs from about a year ago. Yes or no? Call the child psychologist. I quite liked it. I'm not sure what it was, but it, it's pretty good. But imagine you've got a son, right? You've got a son at kindy. And one day you go there to pick him up and the staff pull you aside and ask to have a word with you. And they're concerned that your son is at risk of being radicalized. So you drew this picture. Next one. He drew this picture and when the staff asked him about him, they heard him say, it's dad with a cooker bomb. I guess a homemade bomb or something. 
And they tell you that they've informed the counter-terrorism authorities. And it's quite possible your child is is going to be taken off you. How do you feel? You've done nothing wrong. You've done your best for your son in society. You've no idea what this is all about. Well, it turns out the boy, this is a true story. It happened last week in the UK. It turned out the boy had drawn a picture of his dad chopping a cucumber. Not a cooker bomb, a cucumber. But this is the world we live in, heightened tension. Thankfully, it went no further. But how would you feel with that? You've done nothing wrong. And people are telling lies about you, uh, ruining your reputation. How does God feel? See, God is good, loving, full of grace, and he is just, he's fair. He won't just let evil get away with it. And the irony is when people react against um, what they misconceive of God's wrath, when they react against the idea of cruelty, injustice, anger, these are the very things God's wrath is set against. So the cup, that was the first thing that shows Jesus' greatness. The second thing is baptism. That's here, it means this overwhelming, sense of an overwhelming experience. It's like a surfer being dumped by a three-meter wave. Jesus is going to take on an overwhelming experience, baptism, of being condemned. And the third way Jesus is great in serving us in drinking this cup of suffering, God's just reaction, rejection of evil, and being completely immersed in it, it's not just a good example of great servant leadership, though it is definitely that. Jesus is going to do so, do all of this, because, verse 45, he's going to be our ransom. His death and suffering actually achieve something. They pay our debt. Now, these days, we tend to associate ransom with what you pay to kidnappers. But here, it's more the idea of paying the debt that you owe somebody so that you are released from slavery. That's what Jesus means when he says to James and John, verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. James and John don't go on to be crucified, I don't think. But what he means is that James and John, anyone believing in Jesus... We get to have the same review, the same verdict, the same judgment as if we've already been overwhelmed in that suffering and death and experienced God's wrath. 700 odd years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had said it like this about God's servant. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came deliberately, willingly to take our place of condemnation for our rebellion against God. He walked the road in our place to take up all the suffering of the cross so that we can enjoy all the benefits. This is the leader you want to show you the way. This is the only leader worth trusting your life with. Jesus chooses the way, the way of the cross. Jesus shows us the way, 
coming not to be served, but to serve. And now as he leaves Jericho, Jesus stops on the way. As he's determinedly marching off towards Jerusalem, off to fulfill the most important event in the world ever. He stops in his tracks. Why? For a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road. Now, it's easy to assume, yeah, well, of course he was a beggar. He was blind. How else is he going to make a living? But actually, he's another example of the failure of Israel's religious leaders. Because their law, which they had an awful lot to say about, the law had plenty to say about providing for and caring for people exactly like Bartimaeus uh, as a matter of priority. Old Barty should not have had to be begging. The shadow of death and oppression at this time is cast right into the heart of the religion given to God's people to keep them in God's light. So no one else has cared about Bartimaeus, so why does Jesus stop? You get the, you get the impression Bartimaeus is a bit annoying, don't you? Verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Son of Jesus! Son of David! Have mercy on me! Many rebuked him and told him, Be quiet! But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. See, the irony is, a blind man sat by the side of the road sees more clearly who Jesus is and what he needs from him than his disciples who are on the road with him. And I think what Mark's doing here is he's holding up Bartimaeus as a kind of a best of the lessons of discipleship that we've learned through Mark. An ideal disciple, a living example of what it means to repent and believe, lose your life, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Now, a bit of homework for you. I reckon I found nine things we can identify in this chunk about Bartimaeus um, in the sort of best of discipleship manual. Nine things that we can learn from him. So you have a look over the week, maybe talk about in growth groups, see if you can find nine things. I won't do nine now. You'll be pleased here. I'm just going to draw out three. First of all, verse 47 and 48. Having heard about Jesus, he recognizes Jesus for who he is. Son of David. That's acknowledging that Jesus is, is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. Who comes to bring God's mercy. He recognizes Jesus for who he is. That's why we've been looking at who is Jesus. Uh, giving Jesus a fair go. So that we get to see who Jesus really is. And Mark's gospel shows that Jesus matches like the Old Testament e-fit photo of the Messiah. So we recognize him when we see him. Have you heard who Jesus is? Do you recognize, like Bartimaeus, that he is the Messiah? The one sent to bring us back into right relationship with God. Second thing about Bartimaeus is he's saved by his faith. Your faith has healed you, verse 52. That word for healed there is it's more usually translated saved. And this is the sure promise to us. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Bartimaeus, like Jesus, had nothing to offer Jesus. 
sorry, Bart, not like Jesus. Bartimaeus had nothing to offer Jesus except his faith in him. And like Bartimaeus, like James and John, faith in Jesus is all we need. Because if your answer to Jesus when he asks, what do you want me to do for you, is, if your answer is, have mercy on me, if your faith is in Jesus, he says to you, your faith has saved you. Third thing I'll point out about Bartimaeus is, if you look back at the rich bloke in verse 21 and 22, Jesus tells him to sell all he has and follow me. But what he actually does is go away. Whereas old Barty here, Jesus tells him to go, and he follows. And I reckon Mark deliberately tells us that he follows Jesus along the road. He mentions the road to signify that Bartimaeus is joining Jesus on the way to the cross. He's losing his life, picking up his cross, and following Jesus. So, three things to take away from all of this. Firstly, ask yourself, where am I looking for security? How am I trying to be great? Am I looking to Jesus or to something else? Secondly, ask yourself, who do I lead? How can I serve in order to be great in God's kingdom? And thirdly, be like Bartimaeus. Ask Jesus for mercy. Have faith in him and follow him. So who is Jesus? He's the one who willingly, with the same will and purpose as God the Father, goes to meet his destiny of betrayal, suffering, death, resurrection. Jesus is the one who shows us that God's kingdom turns everything on its head, where the way to be great is to serve Jesus is the one who is the ultimate servant, giving his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is the one who loves us so much that he stops, calls us to him, and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to leave you alone, to sit by the roadside? Curious maybe, interested, but... Not enough to stop him going past. Or will you recognize your need for God's mercy and call out to him? Because if you do, he will save you. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that Jesus willingly went to take the punishment we deserve. I thank you that he is the ultimate servant. Uh, please call us out now. Please help us to see where, where we can be serving, where we can let go of our rights to serve you, your kingdom, and people around us to glorify you and point to Jesus. Amen.